Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. We're wrapping up verse 3. It's like we're flying now. Um, taking on two whole phrases. Hebrews 1 verse 3. I wanted to begin with this quote from um, a book I'm slowly working through called Rejoice and Tremble by Michael Reeves. He makes this insightful comment. He says, when people, through misunderstanding, become simply afraid of God, they will never entrust themselves to him, but must turn elsewhere for their security. In fact, it's when people have this confused fear of God that they turn to other gods. So the book is about having a a proper fear of God. And we know that 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 is a a good thing in Scripture, but there's also a sense in which it's corrupted, in which we we turn away from God because we're afraid of him. And that's that's obviously not good. So he's safeguarding that. But, But this phrase in the middle of this quote, is what struck me. He says, they will never entrust themselves to him, but must turn elsewhere for their security. And ultimately, that's, that's what we're looking for, is security. That's what drives most of us, right? What motivates us is we want to feel that sense of, of security. So one of the primary benefits of reading God's word and sitting under its preaching is that we might gain that sense of true security, spiritual security. An improper fear of God jeopardizes that security, and the solution is to have a better understanding of God. Right? That's what he says. It's, it's, you're afraid of God because of a misunderstanding. So how do you address that misunderstanding? Well, you have a proper understanding of God. You, have to under, you, you read his word and sit under its preaching to gain a better understanding of who he, he is so that you then might also enjoy and experience the benefit and blessing of a true sense of security. Now, think about this as the temptation that the original audience faced when, uh, who read Hebrews. It's a small house church of Jewish believers in Rome, and they're tempted to return to the temple. They're tempted to return so that they don't experience the persecution as Christians were experiencing from the culture. They could, they could disassociate from Christianity, and they could reassociate with the temple worship of the Jews. Right? And that would, that would relieve some of the cultural pressure as well as the pressure from their own kinsmen, right, from other Jews. So they were told that participation in the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant would then bring that relief. Right? It would give them the security that they're seeking. So it was a serious temptation. Later passages in Hebrews will make it clear that 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 sacrificial system was a, was a draw for them. He'll explain that in Hebrews 6, Hebrews 9, and Hebrews 10. So we'll talk about this many more times. But the author, right here from the start, is addressing their concerns, keeping the issue of their redemption at the forefront of their minds. If they decide to reject Christ, they will remain in their sin. The, the very security that they think they're going to find is only going to be much worse. 
right? As long as we live in this body of flesh, we're, we're tempted to either make peace with our sin or to, to make up for our sin, right? In some way to, to curry favor with God and to save ourselves, essentially. Or we simply grow complacent, right? We, we, we grow numb to the consequences of sin so that we're just not really bothered, at least by, by certain sins, all that much. Right, so that can be one thing, and we, we grow complacent or make peace with our sin, or we think that we can address our guilt and our shame through some personal means of penance. Right, we manufacture our own salvation by works. And so what this author is saying is that the humiliation of the Son accomplished our redemption and that his exaltation secures it. So we need to stop trying to save ourselves we need to stop reflecting upon our own um, plan of salvation and to consider what the Son has accomplished for us. And so we'll see this in, in two parts this morning. But before we, we look at uh, the passage, let's uh, ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And as we've already prayed, Lord, we, we open it to hear from you. Lord, you speak to us through your word. You have called us to worship. You, we have responded with song and in prayer. And Lord, now we want to sit under the preaching of your word and also to respond appropriately with our lives of obedience. And so, Lord, we do want to hear from you and we expect to hear from you. We expect you to speak and for it to be effectual for us to be changed. Lord, may we be changed in, in the moment of listening, that your spirit would be at work, that it would be deep, calling out to deep. As your word begins to take root in our hearts, begins to give us the assurance, and the, the sense of security that we're seeking. And Lord, may we do it in in the way that you have prescribed, not looking elsewhere, but trusting in you and in the son that you sent. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Read with me Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, and in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, if you're following along in your outline, the first point here is substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement. The prologue opened with the idea that God's final word has been spoken to us by his son. God has been speaking to creation Right? He has been speaking to his people through prophets, but now he has spoken to us by his son. And that revelation has come both in the person and the work of Christ. Uh, in the person, Jesus perfectly reveals God's character and his attributes. And in his work, he perfectly saves God's people from their sins. The Greek here 
is clear that this purification, right, after making purification for sins, that Greek references, it's, it's, a, it's a past tense, and it's in the middle voice. It implies that that purification has been fully accomplished, fully accomplished, completed by the Son. And we know that he did not do it in the same way that he upholds the universe. We read earlier that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Instead of speaking salvation for us, he made purification for sins by putting sin to death in the sacrifice of himself on the cross. Later on, the author will clarify that this purification required the shedding of blood. You'll see in Hebrews 9, uh, verses 14 and 22, this idea. That purification requires the shedding of blood. So it implies, first of all, if you, if you need to be pured or purified, then it implies that there's a defilement, right? that we have been defiled by sin. The Son is capable of, of purifying others because he himself is without sin. Hebrews 4.15 So in the Old Testament, a person was made clean by this sprinkled blood of a sacrificial animal. Again, and we talked about this in Sunday school, not that the blood of the animal did the work, right? But they were truly clean by looking to that as a sign of the blood of Christ, as a sign of the the Messiah who would shed his blood for them. So they were cleansed by this. And you see, even there under the Old Testament, this connection between uh, cleansing and atonement and making a covering for sin. Um, Exodus 30, verse 10, uh, speaks of this. I'm going to turn there real quick. Exodus 30, verse 10. Aaron shall make atonement... On its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout the generations. It is most holy to the Lord. You have a similar idea there of atonement being uh, directly attached to cleansing, right? The cleansing and the atonement go hand in hand. So his death, then, what, what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that. His death, the death of the son, accomplished the purification that he himself did not need. And there's, this is where the idea of substitution comes in. The reason why he could be our substitute was because he did not need to die. And so in our place, he could take the penalty. And we could receive his righteousness instead. So another word that we attach to this oftentimes is penal, substitutionary atonement. It's because Christ takes our penalty in our place. The penalty that we deserved because of our sin, sin that Christ had no part in doing and had not known his entire life, he becomes sin for us on the cross. He suffered upon the cross in our place. He shed his own blood that we might be cleansed once and for all. 
instead of having to come back year after year. Now, Martin Luther had to learn this, that there was no room for self-cleansing and self-justification on the part of man. Um, in 2,000 Years of Christ's Power, we read this. It's a book on church history. Melanchthon, Luther, and Reformation theology broke decisively with the medieval concept of merit. The believer's acceptance to eternal life, they maintained, was not some far-off goal grounded in the storing up of moral or spiritual qualities in the believer's life. It was a present reality here and now. And as far as the demands of the law were concerned, it was based on the imputation to the believer of Christ's righteousness. Imputation, meaning it's an alien righteousness that's imputed to us, it's given to us, not of ourselves, right? It's not something that we store up. It's not a moral or spiritual quality that we develop over time, but, is, but it is a perfect righteousness that is given to us. And our shame and our guilt, present and future, is all placed upon Christ as he dies upon the cross for our sins. John Calvin says it like this, We explain justification simply as the acceptance with which God receives us into his favor as righteous people. He receives us who sin daily. He receives us as righteous. How can he do that? How can he, just, how can he be justified in doing that? He receives us as righteous, and then Calvin says, and we say that it consists in the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. He receives us as righteous because the righteousness of Christ has been given to us. So when we stand before God, it's as if Christ is standing in front of us, and he only sees the righteousness of Christ. Martin Luther said it like this, it's not from the works that we are set free by the faith of Christ, but from the belief in works. <laughs> that is from foolishly presuming to seek justification through works. Faith redeems our consciences, makes them upright, and preserves them, since by it we recognize the truth that justification does not depend upon our works. Although good works neither can nor ought to be absent, there will be good works, there will be a working. It's not going to be absent from your life, but it does not justify us. It does not, our justification does not depend upon our works. Just as we cannot exist, he says, without food and drink and all other functions of this mortal body. So, the recognition that we are set free by the faith of Christ from the belief in works that we would justify ourselves. It's this constant challenge for us. Right? Attempting to purify yourself is like, is like lathering up with mud and swamp water. Now, you, instead of getting clean, you're only going to exacerbate the problem. But this reference or this verse, this author is telling us that Christ has made purification. He's accomplished the work. 
So again, the, the original audience, Jewish believers in Rome, might have thought that they would find some sense of relief from cultural pressure, and they likely would have. And some of them probably did. But they would have abandoned their faith in Christ to do it. And surely they were not excited about returning to a ritualistic purification that pointed forward as nothing more than a, a shadow. Right? All of the types and shadows of Christ that could be seen in the temple would only expound their shame and apostasy. They needed to consider the impact of their spiritual purification and the cost that the Son paid in order to bring it about. And that's what, really, Hebrews is all about. And the same is true of any believer who's become enamored by the fleeting pleasures offered by this fallen world. Our, our lustful flesh or even the deceitful temptations of the devil. What we need to be reminded is of the spiritual purification that the Son has accomplished on our behalf. We must fight against every temptation with the sword of the Spirit, clothed in the whole armor of God, Ephesians 6. We must put on the belt of truth, acknowledging that this substitutionary atonement could be accomplished by no one else, especially us, especially ourselves. So think about this. It's remarkable that the same Son who radiates God's glory would take upon himself the rags of mankind. The same son who perfectly represents God's nature took upon himself a human nature in order to redeem us. The same son who sustains the, the universe died upon the cross to cleanse the world of her sins, 1 John 2.2. And so anyone and everyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ will have the stains of sin washed as white as snow. Christ's atonement. Reformers have said it this way, Christ's atonement is sufficient for all, but efficient only for some. It's sufficient. It's, it's infinitely valuable. But it only saves those who believe. Right? Jesus' death has infinite meritorious value, but it only saves those who believe in him. So by reminding his audience of the purification that was accomplished by the Son, those who were saved would reflect upon genuine relief that they felt when their shame was removed and their stains were washed away. True purification took place when they stopped pursuing salvation by works. And so whether you've grown complacent in your fight against sin, or you're trying once again to earn your own salvation, you need the Spirit to grant you the faith to know, that the pride, to know this pride-shattering doctrine of the Son's penal substitutionary atonement. This purification was not hypothetical. It's not partially accomplished. In fact, it's presented here as a prerequisite for the enthronement that followed. And so after fully completing the purification of all who place their faith in him, the Son is then received into his heavenly enthronement. And this really is the main idea of this opening sentence. It's the one active verb that all of the other participles are pointing to. So all of these other phrases that have been describing Christ have ultimately been pointing to this event of his enthronement. Every other clause is subordinate to this 
verb that he sat down. It's an aorist active verb. In other words, these descriptions justify the heavenly enthronement of the Son. The author shifts from the cross, from our purification to the throne. The purification that he accomplished on the cross to the throne upon which he sits. Think about that. He leaps past the resurrection and the ascension. Now, of course, this is, doesn't minimize the importance of those events. Uh, but it's to emphasize the exaltation of the Son in a, in a concise manner. Jesus would not be on the throne without the resurrection or without the ascension. But they all belong to God's providential plan that placed him there. He came to earth to make purification for sins, and then he sat upon his throne. It's making the connection direct, that the work has been completed, and that he is now resting in that accomplishment. He's received his reward in that sense. There is an important principle, though, to consider here, because Right? Some Christians have this impression that the gospel should be expressed in a consistent, formulaic fashion. You know, you go from steps one through five. If you skip anything, you're not a true Christian or you're not presenting the gospel accurately. But scripture is never or rarely that formulaic. Right? Those steps are all true, but, but, but the way we emphasize the gospel may differ from time to time. And so the author here is alluding to Psalm 110, verse 1, which he'll actually quote later on in verse 13. Look down there, verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That idea of sitting at the right hand, that promise that the son would sit at the right hand is now uh, stated here in verse 3. He'll allude to this same psalm in Hebrews 8, Hebrews 10, and Hebrews 12. So some have even suggested that Psalm 110 verse 1 really serves as a key structural development of the book. If the people think that they are going to return to the temple to worship the one true God, they're mistaken. How could they worship God while ignoring the son who is seated at his right hand? The temple is in is, it was always served, serving as an earthly copy of the heavenly throne room in which the Son is continually ministering as our high priest. And he'll explain that in Hebrews 8. And so this truth that the Son is on his throne in glory should be emphasized, right? We, we should emphasize the symbolism of Jesus sitting down. We see in Acts 7, 15, uh, 55 and 56, Stephen is being stoned to death. And as he's being stoned, what does he see? He looks up into heaven and he sees the Son, his Savior, standing on his behalf. So he stands in order to act, then he sits to indicate that the work has been finished. And it's unlike the high priest in the temple. In, in Hebrews 10, 11, and 12, it'll say that, that those high priests are, remain standing. They're regularly standing. The work is ongoing. 
They never enter into their rest. But the sacrificial work of Christ is complete. He is the true high priest. And so this is why he declared, it is finished. And before giving up his spirit as he hung upon the cross in John 19.30, the Greek is tetelestai. And it's the perfect passive form of teleo, which means to complete or to finish. It is finished. When a, when a father would send his son on a mission, he didn't return until he completed the last act. And when he did, he would announce his accomplishment with the triumphant declaration, Tetelestai. And then he would be received uh, back into his home. As the son breathed his final breath, he reported his completed mission to the father. It is finished. And the father rewarded him by giving him occupancy to the highest, most honored seat. The same body that was crucified is now exalted. Now, Jesus was resurrected, ascended, and enthroned in his glorified body. So he received his glorified body, and then he ascended into heaven and, and is at the right hand of the Father in his humanity. There's a sense here first of all, in which t- talking about the God's right hand is an anthropomorphism, right? It's, it's using human language, human characteristics to describe God who is a spirit. He doesn't really have a right or a left hand, right? It's, it's similar to saying that he's going to gather us as, a, as an eagle gathers its young or, you know, a chicken gathers its uh, chicks, a hen gathers its chicks. This language helps us to understand the power and the glory that Christ enjoys. He is at the right hand, which was reserved for the highest honor, the highest authority. First Kings 2.19, we read of Bathsheba going before the king, her son at this point, King Solomon. And she speaks on behalf of Adonijah. And it says this, the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Then he sat on his throne and had a seat brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. And he was giving her the highest compliment, the highest honor. And so Calvin argues to sit at the right hand of the father is nothing else than to govern in the place of the father, as deputies or of princes are wont to do, to whom full power over all things is granted. And that's what Jesus declares of himself, right, that all authority has been given to me after his resurrection. And so if the son is seated on his throne, then no amount of cultural pressure can finally rip you from his grip. At John 10, 28, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch, uh, snatch them out of my hand. And this is a promise he's giving to people who are still alive. I've given them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hands. Christ's heavenly enthronement shows that our salvation is not temporary but secure, and what we see of his kingdom on earth is not a measure of his power, because what we see is oftentimes chaos and sin. And we even recognize that when we look at our own faith, we see weaknesses 
We see insecurities. Despite that, he remains seated on his throne. And as Peter would say, he's keeping your inheritance imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. If we are faithless, Paul says to Timothy, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. So the son was exalted to the right hand of the majesty on high to display his glory. His heavenly enthronement reveals the divine acceptance of his redemptive work and then it shows the authority he received. It also makes plain that the son is able to save those who draw near to him by faith, making continual intercession for them. That's what we read in Hebrews 7.25. That because the son is at the right hand of the father, he is interceding for us, making continual intercession. I love how the Westminster Larger Catechism explains this. How does Christ make intercession? Christ makes intercession by his appearing in our nature, in humanity, he appears at the right hand of the majesty on high. It says, Christ makes intercession by his appearing in our nature continually before the Father in heaven in the merit of his obedience and sacrifice on earth. So why is he there? Because of the merit of his obedience and his sacrificial death. He is continually declaring his will to have it applied to all believers. And here's how that's done. Answering all accusations against them, procuring for them quiet of conscience. So when the culture is pressuring, uh, pressing down upon you, when your own conscience is filled with shame, it's Christ who quiets that conscience. It's Christ who answers the accusations of the culture. It goes on to say, notwithstanding daily failings, not on Christ's part, but on our part, daily failings, we still have access with boldness to the throne of grace and acceptance of our persons and services. It can be nothing other than the perfect righteousness of Christ that receives us at the throne of grace, that accepts us as the beloved sons and daughters of God. And so today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. He'll say this same thing to his audience in Hebrews 3, verses 7 through 8, and he's quoting Psalm 95, which says the same thing. Don't harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion in the wilderness generation. Hear his voice. Trust in the finished work of the son that he completed for you on the cross and now keeps secure through his continual intercession. The son's substitutionary atonement makes you completely pure and his heavenly enthronement keeps you eternally secure. And in light of that, you then respond by joining in the chorus of the saints across the globe and those whose souls have already entered into glory, giving praise and honor to God. The Son is the true prophet whose final word has spoken to us. He's the true priest who made purification for our sins 
and he's the true king who sits enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so let us go to him now in prayer and praise. Heavenly Father, it is an important reminder to us that purification has been accomplished, that you have made purification through the accomplished work of the Son. Lord, we, we are cleansed as we come before you. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so we can acknowledge our sin. We can confess it freely to you and recognizing that even daily we fail. But Lord, at the same time, we can apprehend the mercy of God that is held out to us in Christ and in the gospel that gives us that assurance of pardon that tells us that we are accepted that we have been adopted into this family and that we do have an inheritance that is unfading and that Christ keeps for us in heaven. Lord, as we think about the chaos and the challenges and the struggles that we face in our daily lives and, and as we fear about the future, Lord, for there are so many things that, that, that are that justify our fear. But Lord, may we never doubt, may we never doubt substitutionary atonement because we consider and recognize our son who's seated on his throne, your son who's seated on his throne and ever lives to intercede for us. Lord, we're grateful for that intercession. When we don't know how to pray, he prays for us. When we're filled with a conscience that is screaming shame, he quiets it for us. Lord, when we are burdened by the accusations of others, he responds to those accusations on our behalf so that we can never be cast out from your presence. Lord, may we recognize the tremendous privilege that we have and, and not neglect uh, to come to you in prayer, to come to you in opening your word and reading it, meditating upon these truths. And to even sing these songs, Lord, may this be a response of our, our whole being, giving our affections and our heart and our will to you, asking you to guide and direct, to once again be comforted by the celebration of the Lord's Supper and our genuine and true spiritual communion with the Son. It's in his name we ask. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing this hymn of response, O oh, love that will not let me go, hymn number 514.